Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, and CEO of PeopleRain, an AI platform for IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter at peoplerain.io slash podcast. That's people, reign, like the reign of a king or queen, R-E-I-G-N dot I-O slash podcast. You will get bonus content and insights from guests like the special one we have today. As frequent listeners know, each week we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and oftentimes CIOs. Rarely do we have an opportunity to speak with someone who can take credit for almost everything we discuss and almost every guest that we meet, either directly or indirectly. Bill David Dow needs no introduction. He is a pioneer in the world of venture capital, having founded the iconic Moore David Dow Ventures, one of the most respected firms in the Valley, all the way back in 1985. Bill and his team have invested in many companies that have had an outsized influence on Silicon Valley. Companies like Rambus, Shutterfly, Coupa, Cabbage, Proofpoint, and the list goes on and on. Before becoming an investor, Bill had a distinguished career in sales and marketing at Intel. Bill's an alum of Caltech, Dartmouth, and Stanford. He received his PhD in electrical engineering. Bill recently published the acclaimed handbook for the AI generation called The Autonomous Revolution, Reclaiming the Lives We've Sold to Machines. I've read it. And it taught me so much about things I thought I already knew. I highly recommend it. It's better quarantine entertainment than, uh, say, binge-watching Tiger King, even though uh, that's an admittedly low bar. We're lucky to have this opportunity to learn from Bill's perspective on AI and the future of work, but also the future of the economy and the future of society. Bill, welcome to the show. Let's get started with, a, with an easy one. Take us back. 35 years to when you started uh, venture investing. What led to that fateful decision and how has Silicon Valley changed since then? I, I think I, I made my first venture investment, well, I know I did it, was in the 1960s. And uh, I, I stepped right up and I invested $5,000 in a startup and I, I made 50,000. And I thought this was pretty good. And uh, I then uh, embarked, I, I thought, well, my career is going to be, I'm going to work in industry, I'm going to get educated for 25 years, work in industry for 25 years, and, and do venture investing for 25 years. I became 50, I uh, uh, got into venture investing, but I had been doing venture investing as a private individual before that. I, I guess you would have called me an angel. I never thought of myself in those terms. At that time, the way I used to characterize venture capital is the way uh, my friend Tom Perkins uh, used to think about it. He was the founder of Kleiner Perkins. And when I asked Tom what was his secret to success, he said, I put small amounts of money into things, get the risk out. And then when I know what we're really going to do, I pile in. And I always thought that was a great way to invest. And I think that early venture capital followed that model much more closely. And then uh, what has happened in recent years is that large amounts of money has flowed into venture capital. We make 
the big bets early. We pour large amounts of money into things to see if we can get the risk out. And, 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 then, it, it, and then we continue to pour large amounts of money in. So the venture funds have become very, very large. And uh, we, we're doing things very differently. And in my career as a venture investor professionally for 15 years, I made about 25 investments. Uh, and I invested a total of, if you can believe it, $75 million. Now, this is what a good investor today invests in a year. And uh, if I was running a million dollar, a billion dollar fund, people would be saying, you're, you're not working very hard. Is the difference, the, uh, at that time, the 75 million I invested turned into 750 million. So that was, that was pretty good. Uh, today, venture funds are happy to return two to three times the invested capital. So it's a, it's a very different business uh, we were in the business of uh, trying to hit home runs, and today the venture business is more focused around hitting singles. Fascinating. Uh, opening up the, uh, the time capsule of Silicon Valley. Now, before we start recording, you and I were talking a little bit about macro trends related to the future of work. Tell us what inspired you to write The Autonomous Revolution. Well, uh, it, it, I had been blogging for a number of years for the Atlantic. And I have a friend of mine, Brian Arthur, who's a complexity theorist who I've got tremendous amounts of respect for. I was out to lunch with him one day and he said, what you're talking about sounds like phase change. Now, phase change is a, uh, is a technical term. Uh, when water turns to ice, it goes through a critical temperature the form of water changes. It goes from being a liquid to a solid. The rules that it obeys, fluid flow for water, are different from ice. And we use different tools on water than we use on ice. And our intuition about water tells us nothing about ice. I suddenly realized that a very parallel thing was happening to society. That society was undergoing the equivalent of social phase change. Its institutions were changing form, obeying different rules, using different tools. I'd, I'd like to give you, go back in a little bit of history. I, I ran the microprocessor area at Intel. At Intel, you know, we all got juiced up and we thought we were gonna change the world and with the microprocessor. And um, I think it might be a better statement that we automated the world. You know, we ran ads about uh, stoplights being automated and uh, cash registers being able to add. And uh, if you look at Excel, uh, Excel uh, you know, what we did is we automated the spreadsheet. So we replaced doing something manually by doing something with a computer. The spreadsheets were used to control the manufacturing area. We still had the manufacturing area. So what we were doing was automating the existing form. Now, if you take a look at what the technologies are doing, is they're doing a lot of automation, but they're changing the existing form. A bank becomes not a building that's run more efficiently, but it becomes an application on a smartphone. 
And uh, for all we know, in the future, we're not even going to need the concept of a bank. One of the ideas that you introduce in the book is that we're unable to monetize the gains produced by autonomous labor. If that's the case, what are the implications for the future labor pool, let's say in a 10 to 20 year time horizon? The, the reason uh, that phenomena goes on is that these tools increase our productivity so dramatically, and we aren't measuring productivity the right way. We, it, it, you know, we measure productivity and we say, if the dollar output per employee is going up, they're getting more productive. At Intel, our dollar output per employee wasn't going up at all, and, uh, but we were producing 40% more transistors per employee. And so our productivity was skyrocketing in terms of unit productivity, but the price that we were getting in the market wasn't, was going down so fast, we, <laughs> we weren't increasing the dollars per employee. And this type of phenomena is going on today uh, quite broadly in our economy. That has deflationary effects uh, and also means that uh, not as many jobs are being created as a result of, of the technology. And uh, that forces us to look around and say, hey, we are living in a society of abundance. It, it wasn't too long ago when work was considered to be a curse. And now we're horribly worried about it uh, because there may not be enough of what we think of as the old form of work around. But there are lots of socially productive things that people should and can be doing and we ought to be looking for ways to compensate people for doing socially productive things. Now, let, let's say that in the autonomous revolution, every human is given back, let's say, you know, call it uh, an hour a day, a day a week, uh, however you want to quantify it. What do you recommend as kind of the answer to take that extra 10 to 15% productivity dividend and help everyone invest that back in creating better societies, improving some of the current ills of society? Well, all right, it, it, if you look at it, the issue is there is plenty of material wealth uh, in our society. I, I, I think we did something that a friend of mine calls the Keynes Point. We passed the Keynes Point where if you divide the number of worker families into the gross national product. It comes out to be around $73,000 per family. There is plenty of wealth. Um, the way we have distributed that wealth in the past is we've used the job to distribute it. Now we're saying, hey, less hours of work that need to be done. So you can come up with all kinds of solutions to that problem. You can pay people more for what they are doing. Um, so you could do some kind of earned income credit. Or you could say, hey, there are people that are doing social, socially useful work, like a mother, who are raising children, and uh, we're not compensating them for doing that. Well, if that mother put that child in daycare and then went off and took a job, 
we we compensate her for that. So maybe we should be looking at paying people that are doing social socially useful work that has currently zero monetary value. The thing about these phase changes is that they are going to be accompanied by new rules and we're going to have to use new tools. It isn't if, if we say, hey, we've done it this way in the past, we're going to do it this way in the future, that isn't going to work. So we're going to have to be creative and think about how we approach this problem. And if we're willing to be creative, there are lots of solutions. Um, we're free from the drudgery of work. I mean, that's, that's if uh, you had lived uh, and were working, I, I'm going to pick a time before, I'm going to say 19, uh, I'm going to pick 40. Most people would have said work was drudgery. It's something we have to do. And uh, I don't want to break my back doing this stuff. I think what we're learning quickly as a society is that the unequal access to opportunities perpetuates that problem of unequal access to wealth. So that Keynesian equation breaks down in ways that I would say, bit, bit of commentary, but I would say are, uh, are, are meaningful for us to you know, use some of those metrics to be having this dialogue. Yeah, but, you know, I look at this, and one of the things we point out in the book is that social phase change has happened twice before. Once we called it the agricultural revolution, and then we called it the industrial revolution. And we made those adjustments as a society in times of scarcity. There weren't, there wasn't enough to go around in those times. Suddenly, we're into an era where we're in an era of abundance, so there is plenty to go around. So if, if mankind could figure out how to adjust in an era of scarcity, we ought to be able to figure out how to adjust in an era, in an era of abundance. Now, one of the concepts that intrigued me in the book is uh, the idea of information fiduciaries. And I got to say that the, the concept, as I understood it, concerns me a bit. So one of the questions that led me to ask is, who do you propose regulates the regulators, the owners or the fiduciaries of, of that information? And maybe start by just explaining the concept of information fiduciaries. Well, as part of the, the phase change things, you know, we looked at some of the challenges that we face as a society. And one of them is uh, that we no longer have privacy. And I would argue that without privacy, there is no freedom. We thought it was important that the individuals own their own information. Uh, that doesn't mean that the information shouldn't be collected, but that the individual should own it and he should decide who gets it. And so we said, you know, why don't we set up the equivalent of a safety deposit box for each individual and all this information can go into it. And then the individual could decide, well, hey, I want free access to Google searches. So I'll let them have access to level one information, let's say or I want to buy my automobile insurance, so I'll let the insurance company access the relevant information in my file. But they can only use it for that purpose. And if 
law enforcement uh, needed to find out about me and they get a search warrant, they could search that information. This was a way of, of giving control to the, universe, the individual over that information. So this was a solution to uh, the privacy problem. It's hard to have a conversation about this kind of digital arms race or data arms race without thinking about its implications on foreign relations. What are your thoughts on the, the concept of the information fiduciary and the data arms race with regard to what's happening between, let's say, Beijing and Washington in terms of investment in AI R&D? All of this... AI technology and the internet of things can be used to uh, power autocracies. I mean, it is uh, a wonderful tool for that. So China, if it chooses, can monitor your activities and you know find out if you're jaywalking and uh, give you a lower social sc score and manage your your life. And uh, I I think that uh, that's one reason why it's extremely important for the individual to be in control of that information, not have it available to everybody. And uh, if this information is a, available to everybody, it's available not only to governments, but to private companies. And uh, I, I think, whereas in China, the, the threat to the individual comes from governments, I believe in, in our country, the threat to us comes from private companies. We are being placed in what I refer to as algorithmic prisons, where the system is evaluating you. You have uh, 50 consumer rating agencies in some form or another, and now you want to go get a bank loan or do business with somebody or get into a college or do something like that. And all these people are, are rating you and somebody's going to them to make a judgment on you. Uh, that's a pretty dangerous thing. And, you know, I, I've done something that's really great. You have the right to check that information once a year and negotiate with the store, the store of that information to have it corrected. Uh, if each week you go in to one of those sources, the 50 sources, go through thousands of documents and then get back to an answering machine or a, an email algorithm and try and correct that information, you have a full-time job. And uh, I, I don't think that's the way we want to live. Hope many lawmakers are listening. In light of your, your comment about algorithmic prisons, and I love that term, what are your, what are your thoughts or how concerned are you about AI bias uh, influencing critical decisions like who gets hired or who we prosecute or who gets a loan. When we train AI algorithms on biased training data, those, uh, those inaccuracies or biases are bound to uh, infiltrate the decision-making. Is that a concern? Yeah. All right. In the past, we've had human bias. Now we're substituting AI bias. But the problem is that human bias has a confined domain. AI bias, uh, you know, affects everything. I mean, it's, it, it's broad. It, so it, it's the reach of AI bias that creates a lot of problems. 
you know, if, if, if somebody wants to reject me because I'm their prejudice against me uh, at a bank for a bank loan, it, it, that's an individual decision at that bank. One that gets embedded in an algorithm, it's a decision that gets made at every bank. And so it's the breadth that, that has a real uh, impact. Now, Bill, we only have a few more minutes, and I got to get in a couple couple questions for you. It's a you know it's a treat to be talking to someone who is there at the foundation of the uh, of the venture capital industry. Give us an example. So you mentioned your first first check you wrote in the '60s, five thousand dollars. Give us an example of the entrepreneur you met or the pitch that you heard, where uh, you know you just said you know this this person's going to be successful. What, what was that story, and how did it play out? Well, you know there are the technologies and the opportunities and the individuals. And I, I made lots of investments where the company succeeded, but it had nothing to do with the original business plan and succeeded because there was an outstanding individual who was in charge and we made a small investment up front and we learned from the mistake and uh, then we uh, redirected things and piled in. The, the key thing was to find, you know, exciting individuals who were committed to success and who were for the most part rational. I, I say that, but the, some of the most successful people that I invested in, I would say had very close to suffering from narcissistic personality disorder. Now, that's a trait they shared with people like Steve Jobs and other people. Narcissists make phenomenal entrepreneurs. They make a right fundamental decision. If they become committed to a wrong fundamental decision, they will take you down a, a sinkhole that is bigger than anything you can imagine. You've contributed so much to the growth of venture capital as an industry. Of all those contributions, uh, uh, which one would you say are you most, most proud? Well, you mean from a business investment point of view? Yeah, Bill Davidow, your, your enduring, enduring legacy. What's on your epitaph? I think probably my most significant business contribution had to do with the marketing of the 8086. Um, when I was at Intel, which um, was a technologically inferior product, we were able to turn into a technologically superior solution for the customer. And as a result, it became an industry standard. So that, that's, that, that probably was uh, my best uh, business achievement. It's an amazing contribution. Uh, we got time for one last one. This is one of, my, one of my favorite questions, Bill. What's your advice to a, a younger version of yourself? I think everybody's going to have to become more entrepreneurial. And I remember my father saying that you should try to put your place yourself in the forefront of progress or in the path of progress. And so I, I think what you'd like to do is try to figure out where these trends are are taking us and then pick a socially responsible career in that field. In my case, in uh, 
1958, it looked like computers were going to be promising. And uh, so I decided I was going to get involved in the computer industry. And that led to all different kinds of things. And at that time, there was something called a mainframe computer. And I started off at mainframe computers and then in mini computers. And then I got into microcomputers. And then I got into venture investing, where a lot of the venture investing had to do with microcomputers. So I think that that if you could find a trend like that and play it for the long term, you're in great shape. Great advice. Second time around, you can, uh, you can make sure you follow it. Although you did a pretty good job the first time around. <laughs> okay. Well, there you have it. Uh, the great Bill David Al. Uh, I encourage everyone listening, go, go pick up the book, The Autonomous Revolution. Uh, Bill, such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dan. I really enjoyed it. You bet. Again, if you like the show, go to peoplerain.io slash podcast. Uh, register for the newsletter. You'll get additional uh, insights from guests like Bill. Thanks for listening. Back next week with another great discussion with a fascinating AI leader. <laughs>